Hello, this is Mike Biffle, uh, creator of Thomas Was Alone and John Wick Hex, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 80 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, May 2nd, 2021. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, I'm joined by Douglas Bogart and Josh Fairhurst, the founders of Limited Run Games, to discuss their vision on keeping physical games alive in a digital space and just what their future holds for Xbox gamers going forward. Microsoft also posted record numbers in quarter three and is looking to update their policies in the PC space. That and more coming up. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness go to Angela, aka Phasma from Seasoned Gaming, for joining my crew in Sea of Thieves just a few weeks ago. In just her second time ever playing Sea of Thieves, she joined us in what would effectively be endgame raid content as we did our first Athena Fort or Fort of Fortune. It was an absolute blast and Angela rocked her role keeping the ship repaired going onto the island taking out skellies taking on bosses uh, learning the ways of the seas it was an absolute blast and it's always a pleasure when you get to welcome people into uh, a gaming space that might be new to them but is one that you hold dear uh, and of course see if these is an evergreen title for me it's one I go back to with regularity uh, and it was just an absolute pleasure to get to introduce uh, Angela to that it was just such a great time there uh, and speaking of Sea of Thieves, I am loving Season 2. Uh, it is an absolute blast. I keep my my uh, ship going alive and going strong, doing all types of missions out there, and I, I keep listening to Keelhauled Podcast uh, to keep me going when I'm not playing. It's a good time, guys, and I, I, I love when we all have these evergreen titles, whether it's, it's Call of Duty or Destiny, Outriders, whatever it is, that just you go back to, and it's, it's kind of like, it's among your daily games. Those are just feel-good games for me, and uh, right now, Sea of Thieves and Fortnite are both doing that for me, and it's, it's funny, because I'm, I'm out there always playing these niche titles, but I always go back to just a few games to just keep them going and recently xbox had a feature where they uh you can or they re rekindled a feature that was disappeared for for just a little bit of time where you can see your most played games uh on your system and I mean, halo wars 2 is up there in like the 30 some odd days for me but sea of thieves is is right behind it with like 24 25 days played uh in that game and it's kind of neat to have that kind of you know mini badge of honor, and without a doubt, 2020 was a year that saw many of my games grow in times played, and more games played probably ever than than I ever have before in a, a year span, thanks to being at home so much. But uh, what a joy it is! So, anywho, uh, shout out to Angela, shout out to Keel Hall Podcast as well with Captain Logan. Um, you guys have been making my gaming weeks better and more awesome. Let's get to some news. Well, first up on the docket this week, Microsoft posted its best third quarter 
ever, and Bethesda likely played a big factor in that. And this is uh, news that's coinciding with the fact that PlayStation 5s are, are outselling and outpacing PlayStation 4s. Sony doing an incredible job on their front. So to get Sony news uh, that was so positive with so many units sold, particularly during a pandemic, was incredible. And to find out that they are, are thriving all the while, Microsoft is also thriving and, and measuring numbers in a different but still relevant way was really cool to have their best third quarter ever. Microsoft must be feeling good, and it looks like Bethesda likely played a big part of that growth. A lot of exciting stuff here. I'm going to read a few notes from Rebecca Valentine over at IGN's article. Of course, she's been on this show, uh, oddly enough, which is really cool. Rebecca, an amazing person. Uh, Used to be with GameIndustry.biz, now over there at IGN. I plucked some elements from her story, some of the stuff with numbers that I'll read to you guys, and and we'll look at just what that means. Uh, Microsoft reported revenue was up 50% year over year, jumping from $2.35 billion in the same period last year to now $3.53 billion. Goodness gracious, uh, they have to be smiling at that, particularly given that they launched two new consoles, and that can be a rather expensive endeavor. Uh, moreover, in getting those consoles made, they were doing so during a chip shortage and uh, all the while acquiring things. Uh, that said, Xbox content and services revenue, and this is what you would think of as Game Pass and, and Xbox Live Gold, uh, not necessarily Xbox Network, as it were, uh, now that they've tried to distinguish between the two, and this is probably the first time that I've understood uh, why they wanted to say the difference, at least in news reporting elements, but Xbox content and services rose from $739 million, uh, or 34% of Microsoft's attributes, and that, that just, just rose quite a bit up there, uh, both in first and third party software sold, as well as Game Pass revenue. And it, it continued evidence, I suppose, that Game Pass does not hurt sales. And I was thinking about that conversation the other day. Uh, Outriders is is a huge success in launching into Game Pass. A lot of mixed reception on the game. I had a blast with my 30, 35 or so hours with it and now, I'm kind of done with it now, if I'm being honest with you. I don't really see myself going back too much, but 35 hours for the cost of my subscription that I use all the time, uh, it, it was just an absolute joy. I, I would have been, I think, frustrated, maybe, maybe, maybe frustrated if I'd spent $60 at this point. Some people will probably be frustrated if they spent 70 on the, the PlayStation side uh, and they only got 10, 15 hours. But for me, 35 hours would have been a success, I think, uh, for sure. But to, ha- to have to not spend that money and still get that time is, is pretty cool. Uh, but bottom line, you know, revenue up all the way over there. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thrilled to see that happening because when you see games launching into Game Pass being successful, that bodes well for the future and seeing other big titles go forward. I know uh, guest host Sean Capri and I speculated the possibilities of perhaps Mass Effect Legendary Edition making its way to Game Pass at some point, day and date or otherwise. Uh, and that's just got to be a great feeling to know that you can still sell a game, sell well, and launch into a subscription service to please those gamers. Uh, thrilled, thrilled to see that. Uh, we mentioned, of course, Bethesda being a possible factor in this. Of course, Microsoft completed uh, their acquisition of ZeniMax, which is Bethesda's parent company, uh, back in March of last year. Not, I'm sorry, March of this year. Uh, and we're not exactly sure just what the numbers of that revenue would be because it happened in the final three weeks of this reporting quarter. And ZeniMax was not a publicly traded company, so you couldn't really get an idea of those numbers. But speculation in the gaming verse seems to be that Microsoft uh, was, was comfortably boosted, I suppose, by the revenue of Bethesda games, which doesn't surprise me, I suppose, as I say it out loud. 
But it's still funny to me because I was never a big Bethesda gamer. So, you know, I'm glad to see that's doing well for them. I mean, of course, I love Doom and, and uh, the Wolfenstein games. I really did like Rage, oddly enough. Uh, thrilled to see a lot of the Bethesda titles there. That's, that's rehashed, I suppose, points that we've made previously in other episodes. But uh, I'm glad to see that that the success uh, and revenue charts climbing for Microsoft and Sony both. It continues to strengthen our medium. Uh, I love the competitive aspects of that because when you have the two companies competing, we get the best bang for our buck. I think it's no doubt at this point that Game Pass is just a huge monumental success and we talked about numbers on that, about that last week uh, as well. And it, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled. I really and truly, I, I suppose there's not a more formal take on it, right? Maybe I could be more serious about it, but uh, the bottom line is I'm just ecstatic. I'm loving the competition. I'm loving the the incredible stuff that Sony is putting out. I'm dumbfounded by some of the dumb things Sony's doing. I'm dumbfounded by some of the dumb things that, that Microsoft does here and there, although uh, I feel like in the past few months, uh, years, uh, maybe two years, they've just been firing on all cylinders, and it's just a matter of time till when those exclusives hit. But uh, if, if I'm if I'm talking to somebody who's thinking about getting a console, and it's going to be their one console going forward, I'm really hard-pressed over which one they should pick. That would be a much more extended conversation now than it ever would have been three years ago. So I'm thrilled to see Microsoft having its best quarters, Sony making bank uh, on PlayStation 4 and 5. Uh, just thrilled to see the success in the space because it only bodes well for my interests going forward. <laughs> Of course, if we're going to be talking about record sales for Microsoft and doing all this gangbuster revenue number, you'd have to think they would want to pass that on to the gamers and developers in their ecosystems. And indeed, they are doing just that in the PC space. Now, stick with me, console guys, because this is going to be relevant to you too. Uh, at least eventually. Microsoft announced in this past week that these changes are only going to affect PC games and not the console games market on the Microsoft Store. Now, what's happening here is that they are going to be reducing the cut they take for selling games on their store, the PC games, mind you, uh, from a 30% standard down to a 12%. Uh, and this is a clear bid, as many people are pointing out, to compete with Steam. And certainly the Epic Game Store has to be on their mind as well. Epic, by the way, hemorrhaging money and giving away so many three, uh, free games. Uh, interesting article not too long ago. They are losing so much money in giving away their free games, but they're making so much money off of Fortnite and other projects that it's really equaling out in their favor overall. So kind of cool to see how Epic is augmenting the, the use of their Epic Game Store. And you'd have to think Microsoft's working to do almost the same type of thing over in their space. Uh, so why are they making these changes? Uh, Matt Booty had some comments here, and I'm going to read you a couple quotes. Uh, quote, Game developers are at the heart of bringing great games to our players, and we want them to find success on our platforms. A clear, no-strings-attached revenue share means that developers can bring more games and more players to find greater commercial success from doing so, end quote. Uh, and what he's really saying in this space is that as they roll out these subscription services like Game Pass, as Game Pass for PC continues to explode and in getting their games, uh, Microsoft games, over onto the Steam space, uh, they're seeing a lot more mindshare 
as a result of that. And the Xbox, the Xbox brand is seeing more mindshare uh, in the PC, PC space than it ever has before. And so it's important that they entice developers to bring things specifically to their content. They are finding a lot of success on Steam with their stuff, so people are becoming more aware of them. Uh, however, what's fascinating about this is that... Uh, Steam is still the place to be despite people not being happy with it. Valve still takes 30% uh, cuts on sales uh, from the Steam store, which Microsoft did until just just now. Uh, and that was reduced to a 25% from 30% if a game hit $10 million in sales and then 20% uh, for every sale after $50 million. And that probably sounded like a good deal when Valve made it and for developers to get when it first launched out. But it sounds rather archaic, and it pales in comparison to what Epic Game Store was doing, uh, and now what Microsoft is doing. This is a lot of pressure to put onto the Steam marketplace. And uh, a recent survey from roughly 3,000 industry professionals, as reported by The Verge, found that a lot of game devs do not think that 30% uh, that revenue cut is fair, and this is all the more pressure into the Steam space. With Epic and Microsoft both now reducing into a 12% platform, really enticing developers to bring content to their platforms, their ecosystems, it continues to push uh, people away from that Steam marketplace. All the while, Microsoft and now Sony, interestingly, are putting their games onto the PC space, uh, day and date free, what have you, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Sony not day and date, but to, to push that mindshare of Xbox into the PC space. That's... That's brilliant strategy, I'd ha I think, in my mind. And there's one other quote from Matt Booty that I'm going to read here uh, to perhaps undercut or, or rather uh, underscore uh, what we've got going on here. Quote, We know that we still have a lot of work to do, but based on the response from both PC gamers and PC game developers, we think that we're headed in the right direction for this community and with the investments that we are making. When our, entire, when our work across the entire PC ecosystem has the potential to come together in a way that propels the industry forward and bring games to, great games to more gamers around the world, end quote. He, of course, teasing a, an impressive 2021 latter half there, probably post-E3 stuff, things you hear about at E3. A lot of excitement there in the Xbox game space. Uh, I'm Again, this is another bid to build competition within the ecosystem, seeing multiple places have success, find success, and enticing developers to bring their games to the gaming space that Microsoft uh, occupies. If Game Pass for PC continues to grow and sales on Steam continue to grow, that further makes Microsoft a more attractive platform for developers to launch day and date, something they've not necessarily been in recent years. I think it's been long documented that the Microsoft Store is rather behind the times, uh, despite getting some revamps and really coming a long way, I'll grant them that, but it's been rather behind the times and PC game gamers do not tend to gravitate towards that Xbox space uh, per se or quickly. Moreover, I think it will, will continue to bring people into this day-and-date attitude and idea for Game Pass, which is the right thing to do when you're trying to push a subscription service. I'm wondering, and I, I would love to be a fly on the wall here, just how many Xbox for PC subscribers there are. Not Ultimate, obviously that wouldn't factor in console there, but just Game Pass for PC because there are way more, there's just an incredible amount of value for PC gamers in Game Pass for PC but Microsoft isn't necessarily the most attractive, uh, and Valve is still traditionally the best place with, with their Steam stuff. So I'm really curious if they are able to, I suppose, bring out that PC marketplace into, 
into the Game Pass realm, as it were, on a consistent basis. I, I just, it's hard to word, I suppose, my thoughts here, other than most PC gamers aren't thinking about Xbox per se. But Microsoft doing a good job at tackling a lot of angles for approach there and gaining that mind share. So I'm curious. I just want to know how much the subscriber base for Game Pass Ultimate is, which includes Game Pass for PC, uh, what the Game Pass for PC subscribers look like versus the overall totals, and, you know, that 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 mythical number of just how many people are paying full price for it. Uh, to any listener right now, if you, if you ever see Game Pass is on sale, get it on sale and stack it. That's the way to do it right there. Uh, paying full price for Game Pass is still an incredible value, but there are so many ways around that. that I, I absolutely advocate uh, stacking that into to a couple years from now with, with good sales around Black Friday. That's the way to do it right there. All right, guys, that's going to be it for this particular topic. Not too much news this week. We're going to transition into listener mail rather quickly here for this episode and then head over to our limited run games interview that does indeed have quite a bit of, uh, well, let's just say some good nuggets of news for Xbox gamers. Hi, this is Jeremy Gritton, art director and story lead for Ori and the Will of the Wisps, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Listener mail on the week. The first one coming from my buddy Antonio Guillen from the Mega Dads, Mr. Hypecaster himself. He says, Rumor is Battlefield 6 is coming to Game Pass. The only reason I don't believe it is due to Halo Infinite's releasing in the same fall window. What are the chances they risk oversaturating Game Pass with a shooter that might compete with Halo Infinite? Hypecaster, this is a fantastic question, and I have heard that same rumor. In fact, I think a few episodes back we did discuss uh, just what it might be like to see Halo Infinite and Battlefield 6 on Game Pass this fall to compete with the likes of Call of Duty, and I think it's a brilliant strategy to include Battlefield 6 on Game Pass, particularly if you are EA. What they would need to do is learn from their Titanfall mishap in which they... uh, put them too close together if they're able to get halo infinite out in november then you would think battlefield 6 needs to be september uh and no no later than september battlefield 6 in september halo infinite in november a good month and a half period for for battlefield 6 to live and thrive and gain notoriety and then halo infinite is the big november the big late fall game pre-holiday you got a lot of good vibes for game pass uh sales headed into the holiday or people gifting it so that you can get the two best shooters as it were uh coming up i think that would be a big win for ea and a big win for xbox i do think battlefield 6 should launch into game pass given the I I would I think it's fair to say the the struggling Battlefield franchise. Battlefield makes some incredible games. Battlefield Five is one of my favorite shooters uh, of all time in the online space. That said, people are disenfranchised with it. It really hasn't hit the marks that they wanted it to. It's no longer that Call of Duty killer, that Call of Duty competitor. Call of Duty seems to have really thrived versus Battlefield, uh, which is really weird given all the struggles that Call of Duty is having. And I'm really kind of just kind of done. I've always liked the Call of Duty games, and I've actually gone to, to their defense more than I, I think I would I would like to admit at this point. However, it's I'm tired. I'm tired of them. And Battlefield 6 is poised to have a lot of potential to obscure that market if they can get a big audience, and if Microsoft is able to 
pitch and market well that they have the two biggest shooters of the year on their system in their subscription service, what a big win that would be. So I recognize your concerns uh, with an oversaturation, but I don't see that as relevant. In fact, Poison, uh, if you can get Microsoft to poise themselves as a shooter console once again, the way the Xbox 360 was, as well as the RPG console, thanks to their owning every RPG maker there is, I think you got a good recipe there uh, for a good holiday, a good sales uh, beat number there, a lot of mind share for Battlefield 6. Uh, and I think EA would be happy with it as well. We'll see. We'll see. Let me know, listeners, what you guys think. And at InsipidGhost on Twitter or InsipidGhost at gmail.com. Thanks for the question, Antonio. You rock, dude. The next question this week comes from my man, Mr. Todd Oxtra, and he asks, Will there be a negative impact on games that don't launch day and date onto Game Pass? People may just assume that it's going to come to Game Pass eventually, and these lost sales may never be made up. It's like the PS Plus effect, but it seems to be more amplified now. Great question, Todd, and I'm thinking about that PS Plus effect first. Uh, Certainly Fall Guys is the most recent game to launch into PlayStation Plus and uh, do well. For, for sure, uh, there was Destruction All-Stars that I don't think anybody would have in their right mind paid $70 for, and they had an appropriate uh, price adjustment on the game there. They also put it into PlayStation Plus uh, day and date. I thought that was a big a big win for Destruction All-Stars, which I, I really did seem to fall short of what a lot of people might have been hoping it would be. Uh, nonetheless, I understand where you're coming from, and when you ask if there's going to be a negative impact to games if they don't launch day and date... I don't think there's going to be an expectation that third-party games need or have to launch day and date into Game Pass. I think there will be a comfortable boost if they do, and we certainly talked about Battlefield 6 in the last question from Antonio. Uh, Outriders is a great example of this. That really boosted a lot of the mindshare and sales of Outriders because people were talking about it, people were playing it. And moreover, you know, if you've got so many people playing Outriders on Xbox, there's DLC for that game, and people are buying it, people are exposed to it that never would have before i don't necessarily think there is an expectation that a third party game needs to or has to launch day and date into game pass what the numbers are showing though is that it is beneficial to the third party to do so of course and obviously we're getting all uh, first party xbox games into game pass day and date that's the big enticing aspect there but man oh man i more and more it just seems to behoove third-party developers to launch games day and date into Game Pass. What I wonder is if in two years' time there's going to be a Game Pass edition that launches day and date into Game Pass that is not necessarily nerfed but may not come with all the bells and whistles that you would get if you purchased the game for $60, $70 outright. I'm curious to, to see how that goes. But overall, I, I think the expectation will be more on the side of developers that it's beneficial for them to put games day and date into Game Pass because Microsoft will, of course, spotlight their subscription service in order to boost sales there. Again, that subscription service is on its way to 30 million by the end of 2021. They're at 23 million right now, so it would really make sense for a third-party developer developer that needs a, a multiplayer base to to subscribe to drop into that subscription service as it were why would you turn down the option to have 23 million potential players potential purchasers of dlc and content within a game uh to really thrive out your your online uh ecosystem there it just it just makes sense for developers to do that but a good question and one to watch if we're being honest playstation plus has used this method effectively before uh and game pass certainly seems to have done the job for 
uh, games like Outriders and MLB The Show. So a lot of eyes on this going forward, particularly in a year where there's not a lot of AAA games. 2022 will be the real litmus test, and we'll, we'll take a, a look at this question again uh, a year from now. This next question comes from a man, Dano. He says, let's say there is no Game Pass. Which six games would you have purchased this year and in the past year that have been added or said they will be added to Game Pass? Reason for six is that he guesses that most people buy two to three games per year. And then quickly responding to Dano uh, was another Twitter user saying, I'm not nice. Uh, And he said, Outriders, he would have regretted it as interest dropped for him after two weeks and MLB the show, but Outriders was one of the ones he purchased. Uh, everything else he wouldn't have known was good until he tried it on Game Pass first. And that's kind of an understandable answer there from I'm not nice to Dano's question. But Dano, it's a tough one because uh, in I, I would have absolutely bought a ton of the games that I have played that are now on Game Pass that didn't necessarily launch into Game Pass. Zombie Army 4 is one of them. I really like the, the Rebellion game Zombie Army uh, to, to play out. I just like killing, killing zombies. That's now in Game Pass. World War Z, another zombie game in Game Pass as well. Well worth the money there. I believe I bought that one. Uh, easily, you could say all the Forzas and things like that, but I'm not sure that truly answers your question. Uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order and Star Wars Squadrons are games that I would have purchased uh, as well. Those are now day and date into Game Pass. Of course, I have my, my Xbox Sea of Thieves type stuff that's in there. Battlefront 2 is in there. I bought that uh, prior to it being into Game Pass as well. There are a ton of games that I own that are now in Game Pass. Uh, Second Extinction and Destroy All Humans, of course. Uh, certainly some of them, several of the FIFA games as well. Uh, and I'm scrolling through the list here. Goodness, they got Grand Theft Auto back on there. That's that's nuts. I'm scrolling through the list mainly because games get added and removed so often from Game Pass that it's just nuts. Of course, I own all the Arkham games. Those are always going to be ones that I would purchase regardless of whether or not they're into Game Pass. Carrion and Control are in there. Cyber Shadow is in there. One of my favorite games of last year was Darksiders Genesis. That was a must-buy game for me prior to it being into Game Pass, and I absolutely spent the money on the collector's edition and everything there. Uh, Recently downloaded Alien Isolation. That's a game that uh, is in there in Game Pass, and I'm ecstatic to try that one out. I really do like... Uh, that franchise, I suppose, of Aliens, like the, the property, the whatever, the, the property that is Aliens, the Aliens movies and such, uh, and the old AVP games, some of them are pretty good. Uh, so there's that Alien, uh, Aliens Colonial Marines, which I purchased for four or five bucks on like eBay or whatever, because I wanted to try it and see just how bad it was. Oh, that is hot trash in the summer, as my late friend Bobby Pauls once said. Hot trash in the summer. That game is so, so bad. So bad. Uh, but yeah, that's a, it's, it's, a, it's fun when you look at that, when you look at all the games that you would have bought regardless that are in Game Pass that you can now expose your friends to now. Pretty cool thing. And, I, and Dano, thanks for the question because I'm, I'm scrolling through here and there's just so much value there. And if I were to add up in Game Pass all the games that I own prior to them being in Game Pass, you're talking hundreds of dollars, hundreds of dollars. There's just so much value in Game Pass's stuff. And uh, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's all every week. Every week, it seems like on an Xbox show, people are, are touting Game Pass. And it's not a gimmick. You know what I'm saying? It's not a gimmick. It just seems to be the thing. Great question, Dan. This next question comes from Edward Varnell, and I'll read it in just a moment. Uh, I will note for Mr. Edward Varnell at the Retro Code on Twitter, this next upcoming interview is with Limited Run Games, and this interview comes as a result 
of Edward re- asking me to ask them uh, why they don't publish on Xbox and a few other aspects about limited run games. And so I I shot them an email and set up an interview, to ch- and they were willing to let me record it uh, to put onto the show. And that comes from you guys, listeners, people who are willing to write in, uh, be active in it, sub- submit uh, people that they're interested in having on the show, uh, ask me to connect with other people or connect people with me. It's, it's happened rather quietly a couple times where uh, listeners of the show are, are aware of somebody that they want to be here and, and have me interview and they'll connect me with them on the back end. And I really love when that happens. So uh, Edward, thank you so much for the question a few weeks ago about limited run. Obviously I didn't answer it when we first, when you first asked it, but I kept it banked. I asked them questions uh, related to what you wrote in about limited run. Uh, and I hope you specifically more than anybody else is able to enjoy that interview because you're the one that, that really brought it up, man. On to Edward's question for this week. He says, this is an easy question, so here goes. Should Microsoft push hard with marketing and showing games for the Tokyo Game Show? If not, does that mean that this is an area of business that they don't concern or are bothered with? Well, let's take the second part of that first, actually, Edward. Uh, They are absolutely concerned and bothered with getting into the Asian market. Getting into the Japanese market, I think, is more of the end goal and a bit more complicated than, you know, years ago when we might have thought, like, oh, just have a Japanese developer make games. I think they're trying to enter into the Asian market by way of India and Korea using xCloud. They're certainly seeming to to talk up and really try to work with uh, a lot of Japanese game developers to enter into that space as well. But it's a matter of mindshare at this point. They are an American company trying to take place uh, or, or make their business in a place where Nintendo and Sony uh, have dominated the first party space as Japanese companies. And there's a lot of incredible Japanese game makers uh, that seem to spotlight those two particular ecosystems. We have seen a huge influx of support from Xbox for Japanese games into Game Pass, and the easy ones to cite are the Yakuza and Kingdom Hearts games as well as Final Fantasy. Uh, But there's a lot more than just those. I'm thinking about Code Vein and Bloodstained and so many others that Microsoft is really trying to support. I think it's just a very long road for Xbox to gain the, the healthy attention that they want in that place and in that space. Uh, as far as pushing the first part of your question, uh, should they push hard with marketing and showing games at the Tokyo Game Show? Only if they're the right fit. And really and truly, I'm not overly concerned uh, or aware of a lot that is a right fit for the Tokyo Game Show. That is just a unique show that I am not overly familiar with myself. But if Microsoft's catalog isn't designed to appeal to that type of gamer or developer, then they should not push hard with it. It is very evident and obvious to anyone that's paying attention that they are working to get into the Japanese market and and more widely the Asian markets by way of a few other strategies. Uh, If it's not the right time, don't force it. Don't force it. We've seen that happen too often where companies will try to enter into a space or bully their way into a space but with dollars spent, and that's not necessarily how you build customer loyalty. But good question, Edward, uh, and I appreciate you always writing in, my friend. Alrighty, guys, that is going to do it for my portion of this episode of the Xbox Expansion Pass. Coming up, we're talking to Limited Run Games about their future on Xbox, how their company got started, and just what the physical medium space uh, means in a digital world. A lot of good stuff here in this interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Check it out. Uh, One thing I was going to ask any listener that's active on Twitter to do. Uh, this is this is a request, obviously. I mean, they're always requests, right? But I would love to start seeing quotes show up 
from the show, the guests of the show, uh, things that you liked that they said, just kind of in, a, in the thread where the, the tweet goes up. That would help raise attention for the show uh, on Twitter. You know I put up the pinned tweet every week with the, the episode uh, and the links for it. But if there are quotes that the guests drop into there that you really like, responding to that with one or two of them would be really cool and a way to help other fans you know, find out some of the cool things that are happening on XEP, but also uh, <laughs> secretly, not secretly, uh, none too secretly uh it would just show me that more people are listening and making it through those parts of the episode and that's always fun all right guys that's it for me you can always tweet your questions at insipid ghost or email me insipidghost at gmail.com enjoy the interview have a wonderful rest of your week take care Alrighty, guys, I am joined now by Douglas Bogart and Josh Fairhurst of Limited Run Games out of near my hometown in Raleigh, North Carolina. Gents, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I am thrilled to have you guys here. You guys, of course, are the founders of Limited Run Games, which specialize in bringing all types of niche games to the physical market that exists uh, in a largely digital world. Uh, can you guys tell me a little bit about how you got started with that program overall with Limited Run? Yeah, sure. So uh, I have been a game developer since 2008. When I was in my junior year of college, I worked at Epic on uh, uh, as a tester on Gears of War 2. And uh, since then, I've just really been very ingrained in games. When I got out of college, I uh, started my own company developing games. And uh, that was very hard. I, I built a lot of games for clients. We did work for hire and eventually the work dried up, but I had an opportunity to release one of the games we had developed physically for the PlayStation Vita. And uh, I took that opportunity because as a developer, like, you know, having my game physically exist was really appealing because it, it kept my game, you know, relevant. Even if the servers that stored this game were to be shut down or whatever like the physical copy would are always exist so mm -hmm. there would be a way for people to remember that you know we made this game that we existed whatever it gave us a legacy so um i took that opportunity to release that game physically and i brought douglas on board he was a tester at my company and a friend that i've had since middle school um so it was a good chance to kind of get to work with my friend and build a company with him uh, so he came on and he did a lot of early marketing and it turned out that, you know, there was a lot of people that were really frustrated about uh, digital games. Like they wanted the choice, you know, they weren't necessarily mad that digital existed, but they wanted the choice of having some of these games physically. So um, when we released our first physical game, it sold out in under two hours and it was kind of clear, like, you know, we should help other developers bring their games out physically as well. So from there, we kind of started working with other developers and we released, uh, I think our first release that wasn't a game that we had developed internally was Oddworld, which was a really big title. So um, that kind of immediately validated us with a lot of other developers. And from there, you know, we were just kind of releasing uh, anything and everything that uh, we liked. And we kind of have subsequently in the last five years released about 700 or 800 different physical products which is kind of insane to think about so i'm thinking about the idea that you said you were a game developer back in 2008 and here you are in 2021 
running this company, but you guys had started, you were an offshoot, Limited Run rather, is an offshoot of another company, yes? Yeah, so my game development company, Mighty Rabbit Studios, uh, that's kind of where we started. Uh, we're a separate company now, so like Wikipedia is incorrect in saying that, you know, it's a subsidiary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, Limited Run is completely separate from Mighty Rabbit, but it did kind of start out from that because you know the first two titles we released were games that we had developed at mighty rabbit very cool so you guys put this company together you started off tell me about that first year or so when limited run was out there uh you sold out that first game but when you're out there making deals talking to developers about making physical prints what sort of challenges did you guys run into uh a lot of people thought we weren't real i uh (laughs) really Yeah, uh, Josh had me go to the PSX show in 2015, and we had only done Breach and Clear at that point, and I would walk around with it showing developers, like, hey, this is something we can do for you, and they're like, did you make that in your garage? And I was like, no, this is, Sony made this, it's real. And that was the hardest hurdle, and just, you know, we had to really establish trust within the industry, because a lot of people talked to each other, and we were, you know, new to the scene. Um, I think one of the biggest things that validated us was Oddworld reached out and they wanted to work with us to do Oddworld New and Tasty. And that being such a legendary company kind of uh, helped establish trust with more companies. Mm -hmm. As you kind of bumped elbows with different people, were you finding people or or developers that were interested, but that you couldn't accommodate or vice versa that you were interested in and weren't interested in you? Um, We definitely had a lot of devs, especially like we, when we started the company, we made like a wish list of all the people we wanted to work with. And there was definitely a few that initially were like, no, we're, we're not interested in this either due to the, you guys being a new company or we just don't understand the concept. And, uh, but over time we've been able to turn a lot of those people around, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> as we've grown. So that was, that was definitely a hurdle originally, but it's gotten a lot better now. So I'm thinking about what Josh was saying as far as him being a developer and getting to see that physical game for the first time uh, in that digital world. Were you finding that many developers were having that same fear, Josh, where you made this, you didn't want it to go away? Kind of this is if you're in 2008, I mean, Xbox Live Arcade is young and and getting a lot of people onto the map. But were you finding that that fear happening in other places also? So we actually we started limited run in. 2015 so it was kind of more of a uh 2008 is when i was working on gears of war 2 i see okay 2010 is when i started my development company and then 2015 is when i did limited run sorry i should have established the timeline better um but by 2015 it was kind of clear that a lot of these digital services were going to eventually go down like you know Mm -hmm. the original xbox live implementation was gone at that point and there wasn't a whole lot for that, but it was like, you know, DLC for like Night Seal Republic was gone. And uh, some of those really early Xbox Live Arcade games like Pac-Man for the original Xbox, like you know, nobody, nobody really cares. You can play that on a million consoles, but like this stuff was lost. So it was like an early signifier that like digital content will eventually be lost, you know, mm-hmm. outside of piracy, um, which is fine. You know, I don't have a problem with that, but like there are some people who... Uh, either lack the technical savvy, a technical know-how to like mod a console to mm-hmm. download games from these websites, or they just, you know, they, they have strong uh, opposition to downloading a game illegally, you know, whether or not, you know, there's a, a legal way to get it. Um, 
So having these physical games, I think is very important to a lot of people on the development side. We saw like, I think the biggest thing that made it attractive to people was more like uh, when your game's digital, it doesn't feel real, especially to like your parents or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. if you're a developer who's like in their thirties and they have parents who are in their fifties, sixties, seventies, whatever, like they're very physical. They're very tangible. Like, they think you're basically playing pretend or whatever in your work, unless you bring home a physical product that like actually exists. And Mm -hmm. to a lot of developers, they would say to us, like, I can finally show my mom something and she won't think that I just, you know, I'm unemployed. Gotcha. I'm glad you did establish that timeline too, because in my mind I was panicking. I'm like, wait, when I looked up limited limited run, I was seeing a lot of Vita stuff in the very beginning. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I have actually have uh, two limited run prints. Uh, that I keep in my classroom for students to see of, nice, huh? uh, of SteamWorld Heist, I believe. And I think Breach and Clear is the other one, I think, I think, uh, which is really, really cool. Um, when you guys are going to make prints, how is that process like? Are you having to discuss box art uh, as it were, because this is now going to have a box, which is different per se than a digital storefront uh, piece of art? How do you guys select and go through that process with the companies? Um, so <clears throat> we'll usually ask for their artists and their team to kind of give us like a, a, a dump, which is a weird thing to say out loud, uh, of all their key art and images that they have. And we kind of go through those and say like, which ones of these would work for cover art? And, you know, in the rare case that they don't have anything available, um, our art team can either uh, improve something that they have, or we can contract one of our artists that we kind of keep in a stable that can design new cover art. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's basically about it. They just work with our art team. Uh, our art director, Shadi, has a really good team, and they do a good job at, like, figuring out which, which art's going to work best. So it might be interesting to, to talk about how big a company Limited Run is, how many people work for you guys, what type of departments do you have. Uh, you have an art team, which I think might surprise some people. Of course, those in the know would not be, but uh, how big is Limited Run? So we have 50 employees now. Um, yeah. It started off as just Douglas and I doing almost everything. And it's kind of crazy how much we managed to accomplish through that. Like mm-hmm. we really didn't expand out and hire a lot of people until maybe like two and a half, three years ago. Like the first two years were primarily like me doing all the art, all of the submissions for code, uh, all of the website stuff. Uh, and then Douglas and I kind of sharing the load on marketing or whatever, but, mm-hmm. um, basically every hat that could be worn was like worn by me or Douglas or shared between the two of us, which is kind of insane. And eventually it just started being too much to handle and we would find people to take over the tasks that we hated. So like I hated doing taxes and financial stuff like that's the worst. So one of our first hires was somebody to handle taxes, financial stuff so that like no more accounting stuff would have to be on my shoulders. And then Douglas really hated having to try to keep up with customer support and also keep up with business development. So and shipping and shipping. Yeah. So customer support was the next thing that we kind of figured out how to uh, get other people on for and shipping as well was another thing. It was like clear we needed to, you know, get additional help there. So right now I'd say the majority of our 50, uh, 50 member team is marketing and shipping or not marketing and shipping, uh, customer support and shipping. So I think we've got 
six people in customer support, maybe like 14 or 15 in shipping. Uh, and mm -hmm. shipping would include our inventory people. So anybody that's like managing the warehouse and like keeping things clear, pulling stock for the people shipping. Mm -hmm. uh, and then marketing is three people. Uh, and art, I think we have five people now. And art is, you know, it's not just laying out the packaging, but it's also like working with the manufacturers and suppliers of everything that goes in our collector's edition. So like... Mm -hmm they're supplying art and guidance for like you know metal objects statues figures keychains pins posters trading cards uh basically anything you can imagine like they're handling the process of getting those things to exist mm -hmm. so like they still wear a surprising number of hats and then there's a lot of stuff that douglas and i still do a lot of business development uh creative tasks coming up with the products we're pursuing and you know finding new games to bring on board so we've grown a lot you know from two people to 50 it's kind of insane that is kind of insane and uh douglas what kind of hat are you wearing right now as opposed to where you were say at the beginning of the company in 2015 um my primary responsibilities now are uh business development so i handle a lot of like the boring contract stuff and just searching out new games and scouting um mm -hmm. I also manage our support and marketing team. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, both of those self-manage themselves for the most part at this point. We have very competent people in those places. Um, mm -hmm. So I would say it's mainly just working with developers and just kind of assisting Josh on anything else he needs me to do. Um, we kind of, a lot of our stuff overlaps now. And like Josh was saying, we've grown so much now that we were able to offload most of the tasks that we hated. So. Um, <laughs> It's, it's been good. Yeah, and then going to conventions, like that's something, you know, one day if we're able to, again, that was, uh, I would go to pretty much all of them. And then uh, the big ones, Josh and I would tag team, um, like E3 and GDC, which we're both sorely missing. Yeah, I can imagine. I can certainly imagine for a lot of reasons uh, that we're missing that. And uh, before we get into kind of the logistics and, and whatnot of the company, I'm curious, do you guys enjoy your roles at Limited Run now? more than the beginning and that kind of upstart mentality and vibe. I mean, certainly you've been able to offload some of the responsibilities that you're not too keen on, but are you, do you enjoy the roles now more or less from when you started? Uh, I, I can definitely say I enjoy mine more. Uh, I did not enjoy shipping and I did not enjoy doing support roles. Um, mm -hmm. Those are things that I was like, I wasn't necessarily bad at, but it was just so much to do. And I felt like so many of my other tasks were like not getting done. So it's, mm -hmm. it feels better to have more focus now. Sure. Josh, how about you? Yeah, I would say that I kind of enjoy what I'm doing now more than before. When we first started, I, I mean, I think there was a, one of the things that I enjoyed more at the start was being able to be more involved in our community. So when we were a smaller company, it was much easier to ensure that every single person that reached out to us could get an answer or some kind of comment on their posts. And, you know, a lot of people felt very involved with us early on because there were a lot fewer people for us to interact with overall. Mm -hmm. It would be maybe, uh, I think we had like 2000 followers on Twitter. So if somebody sent us a message, like we would be able to see it and respond to it with pretty good uh, timeliness. But now mm -hmm. with 207,000 followers and constant questions on twitter it's like impossible to stay on top of all of it like there's no way to guarantee that we're responding to everybody and i think a lot of the people that were with us early on like they feel a little burned now because we can't give them the attention that we used to 
And mm-hmm. uh, I, I regret that a little bit. I, I miss being kind of able to be that active, but I do love that now I can really focus on the stuff that I enjoy the most, which is product development, like coming up with new boxed products and ideas for our collector's editions and things like that. Like, that's what I really enjoy the most, like the creative aspects of this. And Mm -hmm. it was really hard to juggle that before with so many other things, especially like trying to handle financial stuff or uh, trying to handle inventory problems or making sure things were getting shipped out. Like, it's so much better to be able to focus on the aspects that I really enjoy. Sure. Sure. And we had uh, a lot of people write in with questions for you guys. And one of them, Mr. Kyle Stevenson, uh, he asked, uh, or rather he should, I should say, he said as a massive fan of limited run uh, and what they're doing to preserve physical media, what's the process for deciding what those games uh, are to make a physical edition of and do the publishers come to you or, or vice versa but i'd like to add on to to that question of, of how you decide also how do you guys decide what goes into that physical edition and those special editions mm-hmm. you mentioned key change statues and whatnot um how are you going about deciding what you want to Im- include in certain games yeah so i mean to answer some of the initial questions real quick uh a lot of the developers now are kind of coming to us but mm-hmm. there are several games where we have to chase them down like if they're dream games that we want to sign like scott pilgrim for example uh that was our biggest release that we've ever had we've been chasing that game for about five years now basically since we started Mm -hmm. and uh a lot of factors kind of led to us getting that but a lot of that was us kind of chasing it down um but i would say 70 percent of our releases these days are people who have come to us uh and Mm -hmm. that's a nice position to be in when it comes to deciding what we want to sign for our lineup, it's a combination of kind of what's popular and what we like personally. So a lot of games that are being signed right now are games that Douglas really likes because he's kind of driving a lot of what gets added to our lineup. So uh, people are going to see a lot of horror games and things like that show up because Douglas is a big horror game fan. So like right now we've got Ghosts, which we're backing on Kickstarter that's kind of a passion project of Douglas's that he's been working on for about a year now. Um, for the collector's edition stuff, like what goes in them, that's a, a, a process that kind of changes depending on uh, each game. Like we can't put the same amount of effort into every collector's edition, but if it's a game we're like super excited about, uh, one of the things we'll do is we'll kind of let everybody at the company have uh, a a voice. So they will go on a Google doc and, you know, kind of write out their ideas, say like, it'd be cool if we did this and we'll collect ideas from everyone and then figure out what's most feasible. So we did that for Scott Pilgrim and we ended up getting a a document that was maybe seven or eight pages long. And there were every idea imaginable on there uh, ranging from, very easy to do like keychains to Mm -hmm. extremely difficult to do i can't remember i think we wanted to do like a color change figure or something like that um that would change based on temperature or whatever i don't remember specifically what it was (laughs) but uh i think it was scott it was a scott pilgrim figure and it would change to nega scott depending on how cold it was um that's cool but we kind of narrowed down our list of contents by trying to figure out like what the theme of the box is so mm-hmm. I kind of start on figuring out like what's the box that it comes in going to look like. And then from there, we can kind of narrow down what the contents inside of it are. Cause you want the contents inside to kind of fit the theme of the outer box. Mm-hmm. So otherwise it would just be kind of a hodgepodge of random 
physical things that just be like, you know, just it would feel disparate and not really feel like a cool addition. So for Scott Pilgrim, we came up with the idea of doing a hard instrument case because Scott's in a in a, a, a rock band mm-hmm. uh, and we wanted to do something that felt like a roadie case that he would travel around in, you know, travel, keep his gear in for when they go to shows. And the idea from there was you, let's add contents in there that kind of support that idea. So drumsticks, guitar picks, mm-hmm. uh, and it had this this feature where you open the box and there's a pop-up scene of Scott and his band playing on stage and there's actual working lights and sound. So when you open the box, you hear an Anamanaguchi song start playing and the lights are kind of pulsating with the music lighting up the different elements of this pop-up stage. And you can kind of put your finger underneath the stage and, you know, fold it back up. And underneath that's where all the the special edition contents are. So we really just kind of figure out what the best box will be. And then from there, we, we figure out what contents will support that box theme. That sounds so like so much fun, like so much fun. Do you guys get to play with a lot of stuff that maybe doesn't make it to retail? uh idea wise yeah there's there's quite a lot of stuff that goes on the drawing board and then either doesn't work out or mm-hmm. um developers don't like it for one reason or another or it's too expensive to do for, one, of, uh, one of the things that josh really wants to do that is one of the weirdest items in here is there's a jurassic world cereal box with a built-in screen that he wanted to kind of do for a game uh for like dragon's lair he, or his original idea when you open it the screen would be there and play the startup uh intro but that was really expensive yeah so the the dragon's lair box has this slide out tray on it and i wanted it so that when you slide out the tray uh, a screen that's integrated in the box plays the intro video for dragon's lair because i just thought that would be the coolest thing ever because i have this stupid frosted flakes box when you open the flap it's playing this behind the scenes video of jurassic world Um, it's a it's a rechargeable cereal box it's so weird yeah it's really weird to think that sometimes I need to plug my cereal box in to charge it, but uh, it's an it's a thing that exists. And we had the ability to put a screen into the Dragon's Lair thing, but it was just way too expensive. And at the end of the day, it's like that's a really cool concept, but I don't know how many people would actually be like, "Yeah, I'll pay fifty dollars extra for a box that has a screen on it." Like, mm-hmm. it has to be like a really special game, I think, to like convince people that that's worth it. Um, and then people have to like kind of see the product and execution to like understand like the value of that screen because otherwise it's just like a, a box with a screen. It sounds so wasteful. Well, how, you mentioned price, and that was going to be one of my uh, upcoming questions. How much does the cost of the retail unit factor into what you guys choose to do and not do? Because certainly there are ex- very expensive collector editions out there. Certainly there are some that are far more affordable. How do you guys go about deciding that stuff? So, I mean, we have to be conscious of what people will pay for something. Mm-hmm. Like, we know, like, if we try to charge $500 for a collector's edition, it really limits the pool of people that can buy that thing. And we don't necessarily want to do that. Like, we want to find the right balance between price tag and and popularity for the, the franchise. So, for, like, Scott Pilgrim, our collector's edition was, uh, I think, 130 or 150 and that's kind of like the right price for like a top end collector's edition for me. Like that just feels right. Cause if you buy like a triple a game, like a call of duty or 
uh last of us part two like the collector's editions the high-end ones like they usually top out around 200 bucks like Mm -hmm. that's like that's the consumer expectation for a, a collector's edition is like that price tag and anything higher than that you really start limiting who's going to be able to get it um i know thq occasionally does like really expensive things that go beyond that like their spongebob thing that was like four hundred dollars but um we really like to be below two hundred dollars for our collector's editions and we have to kind of price out the contents to make sure it supports a price tag around that so Mm -hmm. we have an idea like putting a screen into the box like that's going to eat like a huge portion of the available costs that we have for this thing Mm -hmm. um so we can't really pursue every crazy idea we have but occasionally we'll have something like we did a box for luminous which is a, a a puzzle game and uh it's very music focused so we made the box have light and sound and each box for that collector's edition cost $80 to make. And we we didn't do that many of them because at the end of the day, like Lumines is a very niche franchise. So mm-hmm. uh, we really had to think like, we're not gonna be able to sell too many of these, like probably a thousand tops. Mm-hmm. And we really didn't make any extra money on the collector's edition because we also knew we couldn't really charge that much for it. Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we ended up selling it for like uh, maybe a hundred. I think that might've been $150. And I mean, it came with the game, the $80 box, the pin, the a poster. And it was like, basically at the end of the day, like every unit of that made us about the same amount that we were getting from the standard game itself. So, but it also had the vinyl, I think. Yeah. The vinyl was in there, but at the end of the day, like the developers cared more about making something cool than they did about making money. So mm-hmm. that kind of factors into it sometimes. Like if the developers are like, we don't care about making money. We just want to make like a cool thing that we'll be like proud to own. Like in that case, we really don't have to worry too much about costs. It's more about just doing something cool. But for the mm-hmm. most part, like almost all of our partners, they want to make money. So it's very rare when we have somebody they're like, ah, I don't care about making money. Just make the coolest thing you possibly can. Gotcha. Which would make, I mean, it makes sense. And and I'm sure you would find those altruistic approaches uh, from time to time. And uh, I do want to talk a bit about the conversations that you have with uh, the console makers that you guys represent and whatnot. But I am curious about one last aspect of game preservation. Uh, I've heard in previous interviews that you guys have done running into concerns or issues with source code being lost. And we've seen that happen all the way up in AAA developments for remasters and remakes of late. Uh, Ninja Gaiden comes to mind. how do you guys kind of deal with those particular hurdles uh, as you find them? So with source code and stuff. Yeah. So we, uh, we typically when we've re-released a, a retro game, we usually look at it from two approaches because it's really rare to find a developer that actually cared enough to save their source code. It certainly happens, but uh, the ones that we have been directly involved with like night trap, for example, mm-hmm. like, that was a full ground up rebuild of that game. Like none of the original source code was used. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that tends to be kind of the preferred route. I think right now is most people are either reverse engineering and then rebuilding games from the ground up in new engines, or where they're going the route like we did for Shantae on Game Boy Color, which we ported to Switch and PS4 or we haven't ported it to PS4 yet, but we're trying to build out our engine to PS4. Um, the route that we took with that, because that's another case where the source code uh, doesn't exist anymore, is we just built our own emulation engine 
that we can drop the game into and then very easily export it for these other platforms. So we're working on making our uh, emulation engine support PlayStation, Switch, Xbox, PC, and as many platforms as possible so we can very easily like take these classic games and re-release them for modern platforms because mm -hmm. we just noticed that like our partners that we work with, they're sitting on these huge libraries of past games that they're doing nothing with because the expense is usually too high to pay uh, somebody else to do these ports. So we kind of developed this model where we can step in and help them re-release these games for no cost. Mm -hmm. And we think that's going to kind of do uh, a lot for availability for a lot of these classic games. And that's kind of a big initiative that we're pushing right now is this emulation engine to get a lot of these classic games back out there again, whether they have source code or not, because we'll just be able to use the games uh, as they already exist, the the images from the discs or the ROMs from the cartridges. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of game preservation coming in that physical form, but also the idea that you're building the tech to allow some of that older stuff to spring forward onto modern consoles. And when you said modern consoles, you mentioned PS4, Xbox Switch, the the question that kind of jumps to my mind is as these modern consoles, as it were, are building into new a new generation of gaming and backward and forward compatibility are playing a factor here. Do you guys have to change your game plan at all to adjust for PlayStation 5 or, or, or Series SX, anything else coming out with their initiatives? Does that change your game plan, as it were? Uh, so uh, I'll let Douglas respond. He hasn't talked in a while. No, no, no. You can get this one, man. Uh, the next one. <laughs> we, we haven't had to change that <laughs> we haven't had to change too much uh ps5 at the end of the day like they're shipping far more of those with discs you know mm -hmm. with the disc drive than they are without mm -hmm. and with xbox in particular uh the series x versus the series s it's just like i think the series s is is no disc right like mm -hmm. I, I can't remember but most people are not opting for it because it just doesn't have the power of the Series X. So I think the majority of people, they're still going to have disk drives. So mm -hmm. at least in the immediate future, it's not concerning to us. And it's just kind of business as usual. Like we can still keep releasing disks as we were. And on PS5, all of our PS4 games are going to work on there. So there's no real major worry that like, you know, we have to shift or change any strategies. Like we just keep, going forward as planned that's really cool that's really cool now tell me uh as you guys are having to talk to console makers because when i peruse the limited run website i'm seeing a lot of playstation a lot of switch no xbox which i'm sure we'll get to in a moment but what types of conversations do you guys have uh with the console makers as it were you know like i don't know this is com i'm completely ignorant here what do you guys say when you say hey we want to make a vita game uh, in the Vita's heyday, or hey, we want to make a PlayStation Four or Switch game. Um, I mean, for that stuff, we're, we're we have registered accounts uh, and an uh, account managers for each of the platforms. So I mean, it's all very you know by the book and honestly kind of boring. At the end of the day, we just kind of submit a request and say like, hey, we have this game, uh, we have a uh, publishing rights to it, and then they usually just approve it, and that's it. Um, getting on them was a little bit harder, just because you kind of had to like. For like Nintendo, they were very big on curating who was going to do Switch stuff initially. So we kind of had to petition, you know, why it was important for us to be on there. And 
mm-hmm. you know, PlayStation, like Josh was saying earlier, like that was our start and we were kind of already on there as publishers and any publisher can just do physical if they want, but it's not an easy process. So um, that's definitely a thing like that was the big learning curve on working with the platforms is like learning the process and like talking with your account manager and talking with like the people that uh, actually physically produce it and how to get all that arranged. Um, you know, Xbox is interesting because we, we've been having those conversations for years and trying to get on there because there, there's a lot of people at Xbox that have been fighting for us and it's just such a unique thing for them that they're not used to. Um, and we're making really good progress and we're officially Xbox partners. So we're hoping to have more to reveal soon. Is that a recent thing? Again, I'm coming from a place of ignorance, so I'm just asking for the education. Is that a recent thing? Um, it happened last year uh, that we were officially brought on, um, mm-hmm. but it's taken a really long time just to get like paperwork going because Xbox wants us to do certain things first, um, and they had to basically build a team to do this. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's fairly recent. The talk, ironically though, the talks have been going on since like we freaking started, and. Uh, it was almost a recurring joke for me at like every convention. They would like sit down and have a lunch with me and I, they'd just be like, yeah, we can't wait to get you on Xbox. And then after like the third year of doing that, I was like, really though? Like, so, Are you sure? um, and like, we, we would be talking to people that were super excited and then they would get transferred to a new department or leave. And we're like, Oh man, where do we go now? And I even asked Phil Spencer himself at a party once and he knew who we were. And he was like, you know, I'm all for it. Cause I know the fans want it. So, um, yeah, it sounds like it's something that's definitely feasible, and we're gonna we're working really hard to do. We we also have to make sure we pick games. We feel like the Xbox is a whole different audience. We want to make sure we pick games that are really going to appeal to them. Mm-hmm. Do you have games in mind that appeal? Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of our old partners are all Xbox uh, companies now, so I mean, we'd love mm-hmm. to be able to work with them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we we work with Bethesda all the time, and Microsoft mm-hmm. just bought bethesda and it's really weird that like the doom releases we've done are not on xbox like it doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. and uh we work with double fine pretty often we've released Mm -hmm. a few of their games so to not have those as xbox releases physically it's also weird because Mm -hmm. they're they're another first party company now Mm -hmm. so i think one of our big initial initiatives on xbox will be to kind of correct those things where like we work with these first party Xbox companies, but haven't released their games physically. So those will probably be some of the first physical Xbox games we do, but then there's plenty of partners we have that have released games on that. We've released on other platforms on Xbox that mm-hmm. it would be nice to get kind of Xbox caught up to speed there. Um, so we're going to kind of go through our back catalog and see what games have we released on switch and PS4 that were really successful that would also warrant release on xbox and then as far as xbox exclusive stuff goes like i'd love to work with double fine to do like massive chalice which was a really cool uh strategy game that they developed for xbox uh Mm -hmm. and there are some other xbox exclusives as well that i'd eventually like to look at so fingers crossed hopefully everything gets sorted out and we can really start going full steam ahead with xbox soon Certainly so, and I'm I'm speculating, and I'm wondering if why there would be hesitance at first. And I mean, the companies, of course, are very different. One was is a software company primarily; it happens to make some hardware, and uh, you know, so, or Sony seems to be a consumer electronics where they happen to make software. At least on the outside looking in, I'm wondering if perhaps that's where some of the the hiccups were. But 
do you expect that because of these acquisitions Xbox has made with partners you've worked with that will perhaps uh, motivate or re-motivate some of those talks to happen a little bit faster? Uh, I think so. I, I think that's definitely a thing. I think one of the reasons why it's just been hard to get things going on Xbox is I really think that uh, Microsoft's just had a stronger internal push for going digital, like mm -hmm. between Game Pass, between uh, the fact that the Xbox One was originally announced as uh, an all-digital console. Like, uh, I just don't think that there's a huge amount of internal initiative at the company to continue to push physical media like i don't think mm -hmm. anybody like hates it or whatever but i think they understand that the future in game distribution is it's going to be at least for the mainstream it's going to be streaming it's going to be game pass and probably x cloud like just uh, any minute anytime you want to play a game you just choose it and boom it's like netflix or whatever like that's the future so i don't think they're putting a whole lot of uh manpower or effort into their physical distribution yeah, yeah. strategies it felt like nobody at microsoft that we would talk to during the first like two or three years even knew who at the company like even handled retail stuff like half the time like i got this feeling that it was just some random guy out in the middle of a field or whatever like you know in the <laughs> basement you know some guy like in the furthest corner of microsoft just kind of you know, chugging away at these retail releases independent of everyone else. Cause it really felt like nobody knew what was going on there or knew who was handling any of that. Yeah. Their, uh, their culture is definitely very much about what's happening in the future. Mm -hmm. I mean, like game pass is honestly a great value and I use it a lot. And like the company as a whole, just seems to be kind of focusing on future stuff. And like we show up and we're like, Hey, let's do that thing. That's kind of dying, even though, you know, you don't really want to do that. And they're just like, wait, what? And like Josh said, the, the guy who's probably in charge of physical, like, I like, he didn't know who that was. And he probably worked in a really random spot and people, it was probably like office space where like they forgot they were paying him. And like, <laughs> um, but, uh, he's down yeah, there with his red stapler. Yeah. Still getting paychecks. Um, mm -hmm. but we, uh, I don't know. They're like, like Josh said, like they're not opposed to it and they, they seem really excited to get started. And it, it definitely, I would say it definitely helped that a lot of our partners ended up becoming Xbox companies. Um, mm -hmm. they, they were kind of the ones that helped push and get things moving faster. Um, so we're really excited. And, uh, I, you know, we both love Xbox, so it's, it's nice to see, you know, us being on all the platforms. Finally, I can tell you that, uh, while I am almost exclusively digital myself, and I mean, obviously, because we're, we're doing a video interview at this point, you can see behind me, there's quite a few physical things and I've got qu plenty of display cases there. There are a lot of games I would love to celebrate uh, with limited run type stuff. You know, I mean, that's just a way to celebrate uh, fandom in a, a lot of ways. Uh, guys, here's a silly question for you. It's maybe not even specific to limited run. What are you playing right now? What are you enjoying right now in your personal time? Uh, I'm randomly playing the Dead Rising games. I keep on... Uh... I really felt like playing those again, but I keep going back to Dead Rising Three, and it's it's a shame that like to me that was the the peak of it, and they like it stayed on Xbox. I feel like that series should have for that one been ported at some point, like years later. And Douglas, uh, we had Shelby Young, who's the voice actress for that game, on the show not too long ago, and she she would be thrilled to know that people are liking her game. Oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And I, I like cut you great. off. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, no, I was just going to say, that's mainly what I've been playing. I've been playing, like, I was also playing the new Nier game, uh, the new slash old Nier game. Um, yeah. 
And then I just randomly was like, I just feel like killing zombies. And before that, I was going through some weird Red Dead Redemption uh, phase again, where I was replaying the first game again. That's cool. That's cool. How about you, I'm, Josh? Uh, I'm mostly between games right now. I just beat Bravely Default 2 a couple oh, weeks nice. ago. And uh, I was going to start playing It Takes Two with my wife, the the new co-op game from EA Hazelight. Uh, but we haven't really started it yet, so I'm just kind of... You know, she's playing, uh, replaying all the Dishonored games right now. So I'm just kind of sitting there building. I started building Gundam models recently. I hadn't built them for, I don't know, like 20 years. I feel like the last time I built one was like 2001. But I needed something to like distract me from like not looking at my phone or looking at social media or whatever. So I was like, let me buy like, because I, I didn't realize that they still made like $10 Gundam model kits. I mm-hmm. thought they had all gone up to be like 40 bucks. I was like, I'm not paying $40 for a five inch figure or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still like 10 bucks uh, if you find the right store. So I bought a bunch and I've just been building those while she plays Dishonored. But uh, I will occasionally still play Fantasy Star Online 2. Uh, that's the game that I played the most of during uh, last year. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would say that that kind of got me through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Ended up playing like 400 hours of that or something ridiculous uh, in 2020. But I've kind of run out of uh, I've run out of interesting things to do in the game. So I feel like every time I boot it up, I play it for like ten minutes and then find myself uh, asking, you know, what what am I actually going to do? I've done everything interesting, and then I turn it off. Yeah, we're That's... we're really we're really stoked for the new one. Like, yeah, yeah, new new Genesis. When that comes yeah. out, I mean, that'll be that'll just revive the addiction. I think. So for a couple of weeks, limited run might not be printing anything. Give me on hold a little bit, that kind of thing. <laughs> Entirely possible. It's. I will share briefly with the the listeners. Uh, we're chatting via video right now, and the their backgrounds are filled with so many awesome, cool models, toys, collectors editions, statues, whatever, whatever it is. I feel like I need to get the Phil Spencer like uh spyglass and like look in there and try and see all these little easter eggs and nuggets there uh your backgrounds look awesome guys thank you any or do you have any favorites in there um i mean mine's all like dragon ball so the whole thing that's crazy wow okay so that's like an entire wall of dragon ball figures very cool yeah Yeah. mine uh, mine is uh just everything and and anything that i can that i can get that is something that i love so there's star wars stuff there's transformers there's you know there's a small soldiers figure behind me mm-hmm. uh you know just everything that meant something to me as a kid that i've found throughout the the years as a collector you know i've just it's on my shelves that's there's awesome. just an insane amount of stuff so <laughs> that's awesome well, Josh Fairhurst, Douglas Bogart uh, of Limited Run Games, thank you guys for joining me. Please let listeners know uh, what to look forward to for Limited Run, and if they're interested in checking out some Limited Run products, where they should be going. Yeah, check us out on uh, LimitedRunGames.com. Um, you know, I know this is an Xbox thing, but you know, right now we still got uh, the Doom Classic trilogy up. Um, we got Star Wars: Republic Commando, Bug Fables. Uh, Sam and Max is going on sale this Friday whenever this goes live. Uh, and yeah, we got we got a lot of cool stuff, and we got even more cool stuff coming up. Uh, I think we're doing a teaser soon for one of our, our big releases, so keep, keep an eye out. Uh, for the company, at Limited Run Games on Twitter, and then for us, it's at Limited Run Doug and at Limited Run Josh. <laughs>